with great respect and with great kindness, it's a pleasure to welcome you all to Spirit Rock this evening. Uh, Monday Night Meditation has been going on for 30 years, so welcome. And I'd like to welcome the live stream audience that has only been joining us for about a year now. So welcome. Hope your house is warm. Here at Spirit Rock, we are having the second rainfall in the last 48 hours. So I hope you're enjoying all this beautiful rain. My name is Christina Tavera, and I am the event coordinator for tonight. I am supported very beautifully and lovingly by a group of volunteers that I like to highlight every week because they keep coming back every week. And because they come back, we can open the doors. So if you see them, please uh, say thank you to them, and maybe they'll come back next week as well. Tonight's teacher is someone who we haven't gotten to see in this room in a while. Philip Moffat, welcome back. It's nice to have you back. Philip, uh, for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure many of you already do know, but he is a Buddhist meditation teacher and writer based right here at home in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he served as the co-teacher, um, sorry, as the co-guiding -teach teacher here at Spirit Rock from 2010 to 2018. Um, he's led many, many, many meditation retreats up the hill, and he teaches here in this building as well. If you want to follow him and perhaps learn more about um, the Life Balance Institute, which he was the founder and president, you might want to sign his email list. He also has uh, two books that are on sale at the bookstore, and I have left some copies in the lobby that you can check out as well. I know many of you have been here um, many times, but for those of you who are new, you might want to just listen up a little bit. We do turn our cell phones off in this room, completely off, not on vibrate. And uh, we also allow beverages with lids, and we allow little snacks. And yes, we do sell those cookies. They're kind of world famous, so uh, feel free to buy one of those and support the family program. Um, there are assisted hearing devices on that back wall, and those will make the sound a lot clearer. If, a, um, if you are not quite sure how to use them, the folks back there will help you do that to put those on. The bookstore is, um, it runs on a trust system, which means we trust you. It'll be open the whole time, and about 15 minutes after this program ends, we'll close it. But uh, the instructions are there if you want to do any mindful shopping. And just in case, uh, if you're looking for something to do this weekend, Eugene Cash is going to be teaching on Saturday, and he has room in his class. So you might want to check that out and check that out and sign up for that. Thank you again for joining us. If you need my help at all, we are in the office on the left of the bookstore. Gracias, Philip. Let's make sure that the sound is okay for everyone. Not too loud. Good. So it's always nice to be here on Monday night. I don't uh, come here very often on Monday nights, so maybe uh, two or three times a year. And so I'm always, and I'm looking around because I'm seeing who all I know that I can smile and greetings. So that's why I, you see me looking around the room to recognize people that, that, that I know. And it's always uh, a pleasure to uh, have a continuity you know, with, with fellow practitioners. So. And I can say this in a very wonderful way about Spirit Rock teachers. We, uh, to, to a person, view ourselves first as practitioners. And so... Teaching is a robe we put on and take off, but practitioners is a way of life. And 
Um, that's the way that's skillful in the Dhamma. That's the way that uh, brings the happiness of the Buddha. It's this, this uh, attitude, this uh, embrace of uh, a commitment to uh, all is practice. Uh, 24-7 is practice. It begins when uh, people come on retreat, whether it's a, a here on an evening or a day long or a, a few day retreat or a multi-month retreat. At first you feel as though, well, boy, this is a relief from daily life and this is interesting and maybe you get replenished. And then you go back to your regular life and kind of lose it all. <laughs> and then, and I certainly went through that. And then um, the next stage is that you go through the same process of coming on some retreat or something. You get something out of it and you go, oh, I want to bring some piece of this back to my daily life. But there's still that separation between practice and daily life. But you're bringing something back now and that's great. Just as being replenished is great, being uh, cleared of things. And then after that, the next stage is when you, in fact, uh, come here or somewhere else on a retreat. You have the experiences that you have. You bring now all of your past experience with you in such a way, you, you know, when I go back to daily life, I'm going to make my practice a, a, a part of my life. It's, it's, it's going to be part of my life. Practice is part of my life. And that deepens so the next time it's going to be, I want to make practice equally part of my life. And then, after some period of time, which for many people uh, is a number of years, is there comes this shift in view. And you realize, oh, daily life is just practice. And with that comes a degree of freedom because you have a new perspective in which to experience your daily life. And so the soap opera nature of it gets greatly diminished. And instead of looking at gain or loss, praise or blame, you're much more interested in seeing what is suffering and not at suffering and what choice you have to choose non-suffering over suffering. And that empowerment of being able to choose non-suffering over suffering for yourself in terms of how you treat yourself and non-suffering in relation to how you treat others, uh, both verbally and in your actions, you, you become more and more empowered to choose non-suffering over a wider range of experiences. So at first it may be with just small things in your life that you are able to keep equanimity and, and uh, clarity of choice. But then later on it becomes more uh, the things that are more challenging in your life. And it grows and it grows and to this point where you can really take hard personal blows and uh, things where you really, you do care, but you don't go into that clinging around caring. You just care. You just care. This is what I believe. I will stand for this. But you don't have to cling. You don't have to grasp. Uh, one's speech, one's thoughts, one's actions are not filled with aversion. And then for most of us, in terms of on a, on a larger scale of life, we, we, we learn more to be able to accept you know, the, the things that are so disturbing in the world where we don't get twisted in knots, even though we're very concerned and maybe quite active in the world about things that are concerned to us. But again, we're not defined by that. We're not defined by 
our, our caring. So it does, not, it does not lock us in. It opens us up in a way that we're actually more effective on a personal level, on a community level, and so on and so forth. So this, just an evening together in Sangha, in community, is really quite a large thing we do. If we don't remember it's quite a large thing, it's easy to forget the significance of it. So I start our meditation time with this memory, this uh, uh, remembering intention, remembering aspiration as to how we, uh, how we wish to live. Intention is moment to moment. Aspiration is the goal, the, 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 the vision, the sense of possibility that we hold. It's uh, often uh, uh, not understood that intention is this very moment. Here, now. Here, now. That is the only time we actually get to make a choice. Here, now. So, as we begin our practice we, of, of sitting, we'll, we'll begin with uh, what I call arriving. I'm, I've come to teach this more and more because I've realized that people uh, and their practice the, the, in the Sangha uh, don't necessarily really bring themselves to a beginning point. They just sort of start in, but half of them's not there or something, and it's not so... Uh, they're, they're, it's not a collected effort. It's not the whole inner committee's not agreed on this. It's, there's all sorts of scattering, and so it can make it more difficult—not impossible, but more difficult—to really settle in. So we will do arriving, and then we will just uh, see what happens from there. Closing your eyes, if you're comfortable having your eyes closed. If you're not having the eyes down at a 45-degree angle. For those of you at home, uh, finding some place comfortable, but imagining for yourself that you're with the others in such a way that you would keep form, you would honor posture to the degree that your health allows it. We always put health first, but you're holding a form too. The form is part of the commitment, and it is part of the container that allows the mind and heart to feel contained. And we begin arriving. Arriving where? In this room, this space. And again, at home, you're arriving in just the same way Arriving in this space, when, now. Arriving in this space, this room, now. Sounds in the room, sounds outside. Anything that brings us into this moment, this very moment, in the here of this space, in this moment. And as we arrive, we also arrive internally in attitude. 
We bring mindfulness to the front. Mindfulness that we are going to be employing. We know that to practice mindfulness is called to be in the front and in the center, in the core, in the surround. Open mindfulness. Not rejecting any experience because every experience is worthy of mindfulness and offers the potential of an insight. And just as we bring mindfulness to the forefront, so we bring intention. Intention to be present each moment in terms of Dhamma, in terms of insight, of seeing suffering and seeing the end of suffering, seeing a way to understand how it is that life becomes unsatisfactory and what we can let loose of that allows a sense of ease in life, a sense of clarity. So intentional mindfulness or mindfulness intention as you would have it. And flavored, this mindful intention, always flavored with compassion. Mindfulness has two uh, streams. One, a kind of remembering so we can be mindful that if we don't remember what we're being mindful of, the mind falls back into its old habits of uh, looking for the pleasant, uh, looking for what will get me something, getting rid of something I don't like without any deeper consideration. And so there's great importance to not just mindful as what's occurring, but mindful of how you wish to be with what's occurring. And that's why the remembering is so important and it's how we wish to be, what, we're, what our aspiration is, is contained there in the intention. So intention is the values from which we operate, respond to a moment. Mindfulness reminds us that this is what we wish to do and shows us how. Mindful intention, laced with compassion because life is difficult for us and for others. And now arriving in the body. Whatever you did in this silence is fine for arriving in the body. So many different ways to arrive in the body. You can feel the body as a whole. And yes, here's the body. Oh, hello body. You can arrive in the body through specific sensations of feet, the feeling of hands, the feeling of the pelvic bowl, feeling 
all of these different sensations, body sensations. But arriving where in this body and when now? Over and over again, returning to this body awareness. Being embodied as we practice. Mm. Such a good feeling, even when the body aches as mine does at this point. So good to be present. And then as we have these body sensations, we are aware because of mindfulness when we start to fall into judging mind, comparing mind, or fixing mind. In those instances, we're no longer with the body. We're in our views and opinions about the body. So we've left the actual experience and gone off into our views and opinions and the mental activity. The body just as it is in this moment. Knowing the body in the body, the Buddha tells us. So notice when you pop out and without judgment, See that you have a choice to return to body and then gently but firmly do so. You can sweep your awareness through the body from head to toes, repeating or going back up. You can do a gentle relaxation of the body from head to toe as a way to fully occupy the body. Always with mindfulness. So you're building your your momentum of mindfulness while arriving. So you're present with mindfulness as you settle on a single object, what we call the anchor object. Among the body sensations, the body experiences, being mindful of the body, one naturally becomes mindful of the breath. It's continuous. It's life-giving. And so, for some... It's skillful to go to the breath as the object, pouring your attention on the breath, sustaining your attention on the breath. It's called vitaka and vachara in Pali. This aiming, full attention at the breath, and then sustaining it as though we were 
polishing it with our attention. For some, it's more skillful to stay with body sensation, let that be the anchor, or hearing as the anchor, your choice. An anchor object is where we come back to when we're lost, and it is what we use to collect and unify the mind, to collect the scattered attention, the mind's jumping around, collecting that attention into one place, uh, onto one object, and then unifying, learning to rest on that object, the rest attention on the object, to relax the attention while it's on the object, and then to soften into the object in such a way that we get a more intimate relationship with it, which eases the mind even more and sets the mind up for insight. Collecting, unifying, resting, relaxing, softening. This is the sensation, the activity. Attention where? On the breath. Here, on the breath. When? In this very moment. Now, I feel the inhale. Now, I feel the exhale. Or getting more close in. Now, I feel the birth of the inhale. It's beginning. Now I feel the duration, the in-between. Now I feel the cessation of the inhale, the changeover. Now I feel the beginning of the exhale. Now I feel its duration, its in-between. And now it's ending. All endings possibly punctuated by a time of stillness between the in-breath and out-breath and then between the out-breath and the in-breath. For some, not others, sometimes yes, sometimes no. As the room becomes more still as it's doing, You can expand your awareness to the room, breathing in this room, and the quiet and the stillness of the room can sometimes help us become more quiet, more still. It's as though we're riding in on the Sangha's effort, the collective effort. Quite beautiful, this experience of joining, flowing, So for this part of the sit, we continue collecting and unifying by staying with the breath.
each breath here, now. Soften into the breath. the mind wanders and you recognize that it has wandered away from the breath, pause for a moment and confirm that you do have choice as to where you place attention. It's very important for us to learn that. We don't really register that so easily. And then with that choice, the suggestion is to choose to be with the breath here, now. So lawful, the Dhamma.
staying with the breath. Allow the breath to also breathe through your heart. That means to relax the heart as you're relaxing your mind. Softening the heart, just as you're softening the mind by staying with the object of breath or body. So just invite, just see what happens if you invite the heart to relax a little. Give a little smile to the heart, just even the slightest movement at the corner of the lips. It may change the breath in some way. So this is a heartfelt practice. Even though we're developing the concentration, the heart is not excluded. It's mind-heart, bodhicitta. Surrender even more deeply to knowing breath, feeling it at the nostrils, or in the chest. receiving or you may feel the breath experience the breath as a wave in and out like the tide at the shoreline
expanding our practice a bit more. Now when you discover that the mind has wandered, or you discover that it's starting to wander, notice what's pulling it. Is it a memory, a plan, a fantasy, a comment that you're making? a complaint. Just be with that a moment and acknowledge whatever it is. You're willing to receive it, but not now. So then having noticed this, acknowledged it, very quickly, not this isn't a long process, you just recognize oh planning or just thinking in general. And then back to the breath. The breath that's breathing with this soft heart, breathing in this body, this body breath with a soft heart.
or these last minutes of our sit, when your mind's drawn away from the breath, and it's really a strong pull, not some little flickering of the mind, but something really pulled you, that you're really like drawn to it and it, it wants to go back to it. Let it be, allow that what's pulled you to be the temporary object of your meditation, practicing insight. What's this? Not judging it, just as you didn't judge the body or compare or fix the body, but to see it more clearly. Is it pleasant or unpleasant that's pulled you away? Is it wanting something or wanting to not have something? Is it confusion? So much compassion for whatever pulled you. And then return to the breath. The very beginning of our examination for insight. Returning to the breath, renewing the feeling of the breath as direct experience. And soften the heart once again as you breathe through around this embodied breath. Thank you for the nice sit. It was very, very 
uh, calming and um, restful to sit with you all. So we will have a break now for 10 minutes or so. There will be a bell rung calling us back into the room. And there will be an exploration tonight of the awakening factors and particularly the awakening factor of equanimity in this time in which we're living. We can always use a little more, more equanimity, right? So...
as I mentioned right before the break, I thought tonight we would explore the seven awakening factors, the seven qualities that we can each develop that allows us to move more and more away from being caught, being um, uh, uh, in some sort of a negative relationship, some sort of a, uh, unskillful in our action, and so forth, that, that awaken to how things are and then how to relate skillfully to how things are. The uh, seven awakening factors are um, the penultimate, the next to last of the uh, teachings that in the, the main sutta that's used for our meditation instructions called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Sati Patana Sutta, Sati Mindfulness, how to be mindful, the way to practice being mindful. And that sutta starts out with awareness of the body, and it has a number of different ways of being with the body, including the breath, which we did tonight, and uh, also including the, uh, the uh, elementary nature of the breath and so forth, but also just being with the body, as we did tonight. And in the instruction, it's be with the body sitting, lying down, standing, and moving. And so the, this 24-7 that I brought up, aspect of, of being in, in practice, we're mindful of the body all the time. And in many instances, it's easier to be aware of the body than it is the breath. So you're in a, a work situation, a meeting, or some conversation with someone at work, and it's really, there's too much going on to, to get with the breath. But you can feel your body, you can feel the feet touching the floor, or where your hand's resting, some, or just an overall feeling of body, some aspect of body, and that can be very useful. And so um, that's the first foundation of mindfulness, this f- first basket of experiences to be mindful of and how to do so. And then the second is what's called Vedna, this feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that characterizes moments of, of consciousness that arises. At every moment that we experience in the mind, whether it's through the nose or the tongue or hearing or seeing, uh, whatever it is, it has a little bit of flavoring of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that uh, the neither pleasant nor unpleasant, we don't tend to notice very much because usually we notice something because it's pleasant and we like it or it's unpleasant and we don't like it. And oftentimes our relationship to what's arisen in the mind through someone we're looking at someone meeting them for the first time for we because they look pleasant or they look like someone that we know that we have pleasant association with or they look like someone we know that uh, that we have unpleasant association with or they look threatening to us in some way just because of this pleasant or unpleasantness we we our whole opinion how we are experiencing the moment is greatly defined by this pleasant or unpleasant, along with our habits of mind and then the causes and conditions of the moment. And so a lot of times where we lose our freedom is just right there because we don't notice we're not mindful or we fail to look closely at it as we'll see in the seven factors of awakening. So that's the second of these four 
baskets or foundations, means of being aware in the moment. Then the third is the, uh, the emotional and mind states that are arising. So like anger or a calm mind, all of these different states of mind. We notice, we learn to notice what is the state of mind and notice if it's a state of mind we wish to cultivate or not cultivate in those instructions about how to deal with that. So when I was saying it's so lawful, Everything is connected to everything else. And there's always teachings in the Buddha Dhamma of how to respond to whatever's arising. And this fourth uh, basket or foundation of mindfulness, fourth way of looking at our experience, is we look at the body and we look at the pleasant and unpleasant associations and the mind states around that, all from the eyes of the Dhamma. And there's a whole surround of that. We see when the mind is being caught by what are called the hindrances of mind. So the mind's wanting or the mind's in aversion or the mind's restless or the mind's fretting and worrying or the mind's kind of in a deluded, spaced out or not highly functioning state. And we learn to recognize those and we learn how to balance those out and how not to trust what the mind is saying to us when we're in a storm or a swirl of one or more hindrances. And it, so this fourth foundation has a series of things like that, just like the first does about the breath. The first foundation has all this thing about the body, excuse me. And then the fourth has all of these different ways of looking at the at Dhamma. And they're very useful. It's the, the Four Noble Truths and the, and the uh, Satipatthana Sutra is really, in a way, all you need for practice. And then as it goes up, the ever more subtle, the next, the last subtlety is of the seven awakening factors. So it's penultimate to what is considered the teachings of the Buddha, which is the four, found, the four noble truths. The four, found, uh, the four noble truths in all of the different yamas, all the different branches of Buddhism are considered all of the Dhamma. And everything else is like an elaboration of that. So complete, and um, uh, I, I don't know which of my books are out there and which are not, but the, the Dancing with Life book is a complete explanation of the Four Noble Truths from uh, this one uh, teaching of it that's in the, uh, uh, a particular sutta, uh, and um, uh, based on what I learned from my teacher. So the Four Noble Truths, are the, but basically that we've realized that there's this stress, this unease in life, this unsatisfactoriness, the unreliability, all of which is this contained in this word dukkha. And it's not just suffering. It's not saying all of life is suffering or any of that, but there's, there's this uh, 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 unease, this unreliability, this uh, stress, this unsatisfactoriness to the, our regular mind state in relation to what happens to us. We get caught. We are, we are uh, we create misery for ourselves. Life's tough enough without our adding misery. You may have noticed that life is reasonably tough, and it's and so this we add the extra misery, and it's how to change that. The four noble truths and very uh, elaborate and deep understandings come from really what's not that long a teaching. The suttas are the teachings, these various teachings of the Buddha. But very, 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 very profound. And so when we're looking at the seven awakening factors, it's the 
those factors that would lead us to understand the Four Noble Truths. So I find it helpful to put everything in a context like this because the teachings are so interrelated. But you can come here on Monday night or read on your own or listen to Dharma Seed talks or whatever it may be and not necessarily get the larger picture is what you're listening to. So thus I did that in that way for us. And then I wanted to do a little poem about um, uh, that makes this point about it's not so much our experience but how we learn to relate to our experience. Not so much that we get to control what happens to us. Yes, immediately, those we care about, the larger world, our larger community here, uh, our country as a whole, and our leaders in the, uh, this country, and around the world, the environment, all. We don't have that much control. A little bit we can affect, particularly in our own lives, a little bit. But we can affect a great deal how we uh, experience what happens to us. Uh, it's surprising how much we can affect. That is really where the freedom lies, is through understanding and then skillful response. So this, this wisdom, uh, and it's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's satipanya, this mindfulness, that, the wisdom of mindfulness in this way. And this poem, which is not uh, uh, ostensibly Buddhist, it really fits in. It's called Heavy. And it's by Mary Oliver. Many of you would be familiar with her work. That time, I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. I went closer, and I did not die. Surely God had his hand in this, as well as friends. Still, I was bent, and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. Have you noticed? Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again out of my startled mouth? How I linger to admire, admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep waves, a love to which there is no reply. So it is how we carry our experience. Books, bricks, grief, our thoughts, our moods, our disappointments, our reaching out, our attempts, our failures, our successes. When we're tired, when we're excited, it's how we carry each of those. It's how we relate to it that is it's the choice and as we look at the uh, the awakening factors in this uh, introductory way that we're doing tonight we we learned to see this and to uh, to uh, 
be skillful. We, we have something to do. We can know we're in a bad mood or we know that someone's intimidating us or um, that, that, that we're off. But so often we just don't know what to do about it. So uh, in the most profound ways the Dhamma works and in the most everyday mundane way the Dhamma works. Good in the beginning, the Buddha said. Good in the middle and good in the end. And so um, this talk is for each of you, wherever you are in your practice and in your, your development uh, along the path of practice. When we uh, hear this awakening factors, and I describe them as qualities that we develop, there, there's the first quality is mindfulness itself. And this mindfulness is, as I made reference deliberately in the, uh, in the meditation, relates to being present, but not just to being present, because there's no, uh, there's no relationship to what's present and just being present. So then we fall into our old habits. So if you're mindful in, you're having a discussion with a group of people and you know, and, and whatever organization you're in, wherever you're working, if all things being equal, if you're the most mindful, you can get your way. Because you realize, oh, you know, that person's fear-based. If I say, oh, this bad thing could happen, they'll go along with what I'm wanting. Oh, this person's really got a lot of greed. If I paint this picture of all the things that we're going to get from this and how that's going to really benefit them, that would be being mindful. But it's not the mindful of the Buddha. <laughs> so uh, in, in, as mindfulness has become more and more secular, there's a real... Uh, warning here uh, mindfulness is the mindfulness of the Buddha is ethics based and it's based in generosity and uh, in, uh, for a long time in the monasteries where this was all being taught until they felt as though you understood the sila, the ethical side and understood generosity they wouldn't teach you bhavana, this development of these practices because uh, it can be too late you can get the skill and not gotten the other, and you can't come back and pick it up so easily. So uh, very smart on their part in that way. So the, the first of these is mindfulness, and mindfulness with the aim, the purpose of mindfulness is to bring about your having the end of suffering, you having the choice to choose non-suffering over suffering. When we uh, look at mindfulness in that way, then it is to, um, we, we learn that the mindfulness is not just being mindful of what's arising, which as occurs in this uh, process we call aiming, this vataka, where we, we pay attention to what's predominant or what's affecting our, when I say predominant, what's affecting our, our thoughts, words, and actions most clearly. And it may be not what we think it is. So we can be like, someone's, someone's really, we're really angry at what they're saying, but really what's going on is we're hurt. 
And so we, we, the, 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 uh, the surface experience is one of anger, but underneath it's hurt or fear or something. So the predominant means predominant in terms of what's really affecting us. And that's such an ex- interesting exploration that we get. And I encourage you tomorrow, tonight, when you go home and do any interactions, to watch what's really affecting you. Like you, you listen to the news and uh, you have some sort of a re- of reaction to it. But if you weren't feeling that, what would you be feeling? And tomorrow in, in your interaction with others, if you don't have that tonight. So the aiming and the sustaining, that's the first part of the, of the mindfulness. And then um, the way my teacher, the Venerable Ajahn Sumedho, teaches it, and the way that I had found on my own, which was one indication that I'd found my teacher, is that my real a full experience of mindfulness is you you notice the object, you sustain your attention on it, and you fully receive it. You fully receive it. Because without fully receiving it, we have such a superficial experience of it. How do we fully receive an experience? Staying in the body, not staying up in the old coconut, but dropping down into the body. Because the body so often tells us what we're really feeling. And uh, this develops, this body awareness, getting in the habit of staying in the body, develops relatively fast. Over a period of six months, you can start to really feel the difference. And over two years, you can be a person that's that routinely, that is that your default position is to be embodied. Now, maybe you're this quick learner and you're going to do it in two days. Hats off to you. But for folks like me that are slow learners, I, I'd like to be honest about the time of around these experiences. Is it guaranteed in two years? No, it might take you 20 years because you've really got a vested interest of not being in the body for one reason or another. So... It takes as long as it takes. So being mindful of what's there, uh, uh, staying with it, and then fully receiving it, and having a kind of curiosity to it that will lead to the second factor. And doing this more, the curiosity leads us to be treat the more impersonal aspect of it rather than our soap opera aspect. So someone is being... Uh, uh, unkind to you, using, uh, using bad speech, blaming you or treating you like crap, whatever it is, that personally hurts. But the curiosity is to go, oh, what's this? Why is this happening? And not to move it out of our personal drama story and up into the phenomena of this kind of, of bad speech Uh, hurtful speech. What is this? And why am I getting caught in it? That kind of curiosity. So that we're seeing it more as a phenomena of the way human mind works, the nature of things, rather than our narrative interpretation of it. And that curiosity leads to what is the second of these seven factors, and that's called investigation. So we've moved from just being mindful to now... uh, uh, investigating. So what's going on here in this moment? Again, at work, on the phone with your sibling, uh, 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 dealing with the people in the hospital. Someone was telling me about their mother. She's uh, been taken to the hospital today. 
that you that you you're, you are investigating your own experience around this when you're closing down. Why am I closing down? Do I have a choice about closing down? Do I, I, I make an interpretation of what's being said? But is that, am I, am I right in that interpretation? What, what is my motive here? What, we're just investigating, we're interested. We may see a situation, like when you're dealing with uh, the medical attention, where you really need to be an advocate, where you need to be quite strong and say, no, my mother needs this, and she needs this this way, and this has not happened. So it isn't, it, the investigation doesn't mean we go passive. It's, it's not, because uh, Buddhism sometimes gets this rap of being passive, but it's not passive. It's quite an open experience in that way. And we are, so we're, we're seeing the, the, um, the um, facts of the situation, but we're also, and maybe more so, interested in the subjectivity we're interested in this fully knowing the facts of the situation. That's the objective truth. You know, water is wet is an objective truth. Um, but we're also our subjective experience. Oh, I don't like this water. I don't like the taste of this water. There's something's in this water. Whatever. That's subjective. Our, our immediate response of it. And this is in everyday life. In regards to investigation of Dhamma as the truth of the nature of things, we go from that individual to seeing the universal. And in our daily life, we mostly end up, because we have so little time, because we're so, we got this to do and that to do, we're just seeing the moment. But on retreat or sitting here tonight, you would look more for oh, this is the way this particular situation always is. This wanting mind is like this. So we see the wanting, or we see that we are, um, the way that fear uh, runs through situations. And we see that fear runs through everybody, and that the nature of fear is like this, rather than I'm afraid because this happened to me at such time, and I'm afraid it's going to happen again. It's more impersonal, again, this investigation. When we are investigating, it has this effect of bringing forth more energy. And energy is this third awakening factor. I was, um, originally when I was exposed to this, I was surprised that energy followed investigation because I was thinking, okay, if I'm mindful, mindful generates, uh, generates energy because I'm mindful. But uh, the, uh, uh, if, you, if you say that we need the mindfulness and the investigation, that is what really arouses us. And the thus coming out of the out of the investigation, this we fully receive something. And go, well, what is this? Wow, this is really affecting me. Wow, and that so the the investigation arouses our attention. It brings the uh, the spotlight of attention on that which we're being mindful of. Mindfulness and attention are not the same things. Attention is a tool of mindfulness. There is overlap in the experience, but attention is like the spotlight shining on something, and sustaining attention is keeping the spotlight on some experience you're having in the mind or in the body, wherever it may be. 
Are, and watching then, you're saying, what's my attitude to this experience? You move the, uh, the spotlight over into, well, what's my attitude about this? What story am I making up? You've moved the spotlight around. You're directing attention so that your mindfulness can be more full on that, and then investigation can arise. So investigation uh, is at- attention on something. And the rule is which I learned in Aikido, practicing the martial art of Aikido, energy follows attention. So wherever we place our attention, the energy flows towards that. Again, because I'm directing so much of this talk tonight in daily life, you can, uh, you can uh, watch yourself. You're having that difficult conversation with your significant other or a, f- a friend of me, you know, the... The person that launched, when you go to lunch, they sort of take all of the oxygen. They talk all the time and you're having to listen. Or there's always a little put down in their comments. Or there's somehow like there's in the comment not good enough. And you're getting more and more riled up about something. But it's, they're your friend. And so you, why are you feeling like this? You don't usually notice you want to put it aside because you, this is your friend. But no, you say, whoa, I'm feeling unsettled here. What is this? That's the, you've noticed, that's the mindfulness. You see there's suffering in it. You see there's something off. There's dukkha in it. And then you investigate, what is this? What does this feel like? And then you bring the energy into this. Like you, the energy allows you to stay with it longer and to, to, to see more clearly. Your, your interest brings this and you realize, wow, wow, this, uh, uh, her speech towards me has a degree of unskillfulness in it. There's some way that I, uh, she's positioning herself in relation to me frequently during every time we're together, and it really throws me off, and I've not owned up to that, and it's, it's affecting me in a way that is not healthy for me, and that would be all learned. So the insight about, oh, this is causing me pain, was not there in the original. You had to do the investigation. You had to spend the energy, which gave you the time and strength to stay with it. And then you had a little personal psychological insight. The big, the larger Dharma insight is having to do with the uh, what's unreliable, like uh, you know your friend that sometimes is kind to you. Your kindness is subject to a Nietzsche. And so sometimes your friend isn't kind to you, and that this seeing the truth of that change and all, and seeing that uh, that um, uh, the, the just ordinary factors are not reliable they, to be really safe in this way. Ordinary like regular mind states aren't safe in that way. That one can't, one has to be alert and being seen it with Dharma because one can be pulled into someone else's story. That is this larger understanding. Again, I'm keep rooting it in daily life. But that's this larger kind of universal truth that comes out. So tonight we're looking at things both in terms of how they happen to us in our everyday life and in this larger sense of the universal truths. The universal truths of the Buddha, of the Buddha, of the Buddha is that, it's very funny, uh, is that there is, there is dukkha. There is dukkha in life. There is this... Um, that there is this uh, uh, dissatisfaction, this uh, 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 stress, this unease, this unsatisfactoriness, not unreliableness, it's dukkha. Things are always going wrong in small ways and large. You know, you get something just the way you want it. 
and then it changes. And that change is the second of of these characteristics, which is a Nietzsche, that things always change. So even little things, you know, you can't say, well, I really did a good job of brushing my teeth. Now I don't have to do that anymore. No, you've got to brush your teeth again and again and again. You've got to fix another meal. You've got to fix another meal. You've got to wash the clothes. It's the, the, just the everydayness of life can, can have a kind of stress to it. And that's, that's the part of this truth of a Nietzsche, that, that, that there's, things are always changing. And just because they're changing means that we've got to be alert. We can't ever rely on something. You know, well, made the bed. Don't have to do that anymore, right? <laughs> sure. And um, so everything, everything changes. You know, if you um, uh, you think of the person that you were, had such a mad crush on when you were uh, 15 years old, and you think about that person now, and you go, "Wow, was that delusion?" <laughs> we change. Everything changes as we as we as we grow as we learn. So uh, we, we started with mindfulness, we did investigation, and now we're looking at this energy uh, factor. And um, uh, it, 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 the energy factor um, can also help us stay in balance. These, with the mindfulness and the investigation and the energy we learn, we develop a kind of skill around what is termed right effort in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path of the Four Noble Truths. So that when our mind is going to some place that's uh, not good for us, you know, we've been there many a time, we're remembering this old story or we're interpreting something uh, they don't really respect me. Whatever the story is that's taking away our power, our sense of self-worth. And when I say power, I mean empowerment, that uh, sense of agency. Not power over, but the sense of agency. So we, we see something like this is happening, and we, we realize this is a mind state that comes up repeatedly with us. Again, oftentimes around the past or around a future worry. And uh, so right effort... Uh, there's four right efforts. The right effort to avoid going into that mind state or when we recognize we're in this mind state, here we're in this old story about ourselves, we know to abandon it. So avoid going to those old stories when we have choice. If we land there, there's no stopping it, then we make this effort to leave it and, and move to a different view, consider other things. And then uh, the right effort when we're going to a place that's healthy for us, where we are empowered, where we do have agency, where we do have understanding, where we respect ourselves, where our behavior is the way we would wish our behavior to be towards ourselves and towards others, then we, we stay there. And if we're going in that direction, we go, oh, this is going in a good direction. And we, 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 we direct our attention on fully into landing in that place where we are empowered to choose uh, 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 kindness, a uh, 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 balance over these mind states where we're out of balance, where we're not kind to ourselves or another. You're getting how this works? It's so lawful. And again, it works at all levels of looking at our experience from just wanting to feel good about ourselves and do well in this moment to ever more subtle levels of what is the nature of this reality.
And in those ever more subtle levels, it finally goes to some place that uh, there's really a change in perspective. So what we're seeing is something very different. We're not really noticing the soap opera anymore. We're noticing something different than that. And um, um, these things really happen. These uh, evolutions really happen as we go through this. wanted to read another... Uh, uh, sorry, one more first. So, as as we um, as in, in practice, as we're when when we're experiencing these awakening factors during practice, uh, as opposed to like having to do it in the moment, which I've been describing so much of, since you're going back out into life, daily life in that way. Uh, but in practice, in particular, as the mindfulness is strong. And then as, the, as, as we, we start to investigate and, and that brings energy and interest in all of this, the, the mind gets very um, uh, um, satisfied. It gets very content with itself and in a way that it causes this, uh, this feeling of joy. So in daily life, you can be working and you're... you're, you're your mind is steady in such a way and you're so actively engaged in it from, uh, from a Dharma perspective that there's joy. That's joy just because of your mind, not because everything is going well. And um, uh, that joy is a mind-generated joy, it's referred to. It's generated by the mind being content with itself. And mind again, mind heart, it's content with itself. And then you bring that joy into your life and you in fact create joy for yourself and others in daily life. In practice, that joy arises from, uh, from again, where we're doing all that. We're, we're sitting here and we're doing our mindful practice. We started that in our meditation where we got to the point of investigation at the end when we said we went from just being with the breath to uh, opening more and more to what was arising. And so as the mind gets uh, 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 soft and responsive and placeable in that way, it creates this feeling of joy. Investigation and energy and, uh, and joy are the... Um, arousing factors of the mind in practice. So when you're doing your home practice, um, the, the, these are if you're sleepy or you're not engaged or your mind's thinking about everything in the world, these are the three factors you would use to, uh, to create more arousal, more ability to concentrate, more ability to focus, to stay with the object. These are the arousing factors. They're arousing the mind to look at something, to stay with something, to um, see it clearly in that way. Mindfulness is a, a balance between these arising factors and then the calming factors. So in our daily practice, sometimes we need arousal, sometimes we need calming because that we're already all agitated. We, there's too much. We, the, 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 the practice isn't very satisfying. And certainly on retreat, when we're on a multi-day or multi-week or multi-month retreat or multi-year retreat, as far as that matter goes, although that's rare, um, we, 
we, we, we balance these arousing factors with the calming factors, which I will take us through next. But um, um, the, before we do that, as I'm describing all of these, uh, how many of you have been on retreat, on a residential retreat, silent residential retreat? So about oh, 40% of the room. So you know what it's like on retreat, and you know what it would mean about these arousal factors. Uh, but then, um, 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 and you know the different ways your mind goes on retreat. But likewise, on a day long, or even a, a weekend of non-residential retreat, which we offer here, which I really recommend that you explore some of these non-residential weekend retreats because you get to go home every night and um, it fits into a, a, a regular life much more and uh, then having to find time to take five or seven or ten or two weeks or a month off. Um, and so you you can start with this residential, non-residential retreat where you come here and then leave. And, but even on that kind of a retreat, you, you, your practice can quite deepen uh, versus being here just for an evening for a, a couple of hours, one sit and one, uh, one Dharma talk exercise kind of thing. So uh, what, we, what we learn in these practices is we, we really learn how to work with these. I was just teaching in Canada a non-residential retreat. And I taught this uh, uh, for uh, uh, around a very difficult theme, the theme of, of uh, stillness and movement, which a year or so ago, four of us taught uh, a seven-day, five-day, whatever it was, retreat here, six-day retreat on stillness and movement. That's subtle. To, to watch stillness and movement and see how they operate in the mind and uh, just have the insight through that. This was people coming and going every day. But they were eager to know. And they, in fact, did these seven awakening factors quite well and had uh, all of these different kinds of experiences around it. And so it is, it is, it is not that we have to always, that we, our, our practice is limited if we can't go on a residential retreat. We have plenty of options, particularly here in the Bay Area, not speaking to those of you around the country that are watching online, but in the Bay Area, we have plenty of opportunity for people to have this experience. And so something starts to happen in these deeper spaces that I watched happen in this weekend in Canada. And it, it's... Uh, uh, there were uh, out of the 175 people in the room, 40 roughly were new students. They'd never been to anything before in the way of a retreat, and uh, they had these. Uh, came back the second day and reported these various experiences. So, uh, to capture the feeling of this, this poem it's called "Exploring" by Wendell Berry. Always in the wilderness, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown, and it is your first bond with the wilderness you're going into. What you are doing is exploring 
you are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. Repeating, what you're doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of our essential loneliness. For nobody can discover the world for anybody else. Repeating, for nobody can discover the world for anybody else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond and we cease to be alone. Nobody can discover the world for anybody else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond and we cease to be alone. As we open to the spiritual life, insofar as you choose to, you're going into a wilderness. It is the unknown. We have experiences, we have understandings, there's teachings, there's a great inner discovery about ourselves, some that's tough to swallow. Uh, old things come up because a lot of uh, the spiritual journey is, is one of purification. So it's, it's new and it's different and no one can do it for us. We have to do it for ourselves. But it's not those experience, but it's this that, that we, we, we can project onto the experience of, the, of okay, now I'm sitting, I set this retreat, and X and Y happened. But it's really our experience of X and Y. It's our, of getting to know ourselves in this new way. And that's what, that's what we do with these seven awakening factors. As we develop them, we get to, ex- to know ourselves in new ways, in new circumstances, in new, new aspects of our psychology, new aspects of our heart space. That's exciting. It's really exciting. It, to me, is why we make the Dhamma a part of our lives or whatever other spiritual practices you have for this further unfolding, for a deeper union, a deeper communion with this essence, this essence of our being. And all of these awakening factors uh, uh, take part in that. So... Uh, we started with mindfulness. We, under, uh, we understood the role of mindfulness in terms of being present and fully receiving. We saw investigation as what allows us to really see clearly what's there once we've received it and stayed with it. And then uh, that, that investigation brings energy, which allows more investigation and also gives us the strength to, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the strength to stay with it when it's difficult because sometimes it's difficult. It's difficult in daily life in this moment when you're hearing something that's upsetting about the world or something upsetting about your life or in an interaction right now. It can be difficult. And so this, this, this energy allows that. And as the mind really gets clear on what it's about, it's joyous. It's joyous. I've seen this be joyous in so many people in non-retreat situations. I do a lot of work individually in my other, uh, when I'm wearing my other hat around changes and transitions. And as people gain wisdom, the joy that they feel.
Excellent. And then we come to these calming factors. The first is calm itself. That is, as we, as we like, oh, I'm really getting this. And it can be about um, the dynamics of this friendship, this frenemy that I was referring to in daily life. Even in that situation, oh, at first we like we've seen it, we we realize all the unskillfulness, and then as we realize, oh, but I care about my friend, and I've got to work with this. There comes a calm. There comes a time when we settle down, and certainly in retreat space, here on an evening, a day long on a retreat, there's more calm can come. And this, this calmness helps balance um, the... Um, it can start to get personal when we get so excited or we can get overly uh, leaning onto some experience rather than staying back, just receiving it. And the, the calm has that feeling of doing that. And then uh, out of this calm comes what's called concentration. And concentration or samadhi is that when we know the, when the mind is uh, really uh, unified, I ask you to collect your attention around the, the body and collect your attention around the breath and then uh, to unify with it in the meditation. So the samadhi is the state when the mind has become collected and unified. It's concentrated. And when it's concentrated, it's very placeable on any object it's very pliable it will it will do what you ask if you're asking to investigate it will do that it's just it's very uh, it will uh, it, it's just uh, amazingly cooperative it's uh, not like ordinary mind usually ordinary minds pretty much independent you may have noticed you're asked you're trying to learn something and the mind goes wandering off and all of this, it, the mind really becomes, it'll stay where it is, and it will, if you're wanting to like understand something, using the, looking at it from these, the eyes of Dhamma, it'll do it. It's just amazing, actually. Like, wow, that's really true. What they're teaching is really true. The mind really does this. I personally had that kind of beginner's mind experience with that, with delight. And then the mind also comes very flexible. The mind, the mind can take the shape of something. I, I've looked at so many different life experiences and seen the mind take the shape of that life experience. I've looked at these factors like, uh, like dukkha or something. Do that or see a Nietzsche uh, to uh, to see patience. Like the mind can examine what is patience and really know patience. Have this huge insight about patience. Or about resolve, and it actually the mind can have have it will deliver a felt sense of what resolve is, and you know what resolve is, and you can feel resolve in your body in a way that you then learn to bring more resolve, more patience, and so forth into your daily life so this 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 developments we 're developing these qualities of mind in everyday life on retreat. Uh, towards being able to choose non-suffering over suffering. And then the last of these is equanimity. So that you've gone through, the mind was all joyous and then it calmed down and then it got really collected and unified and then out of that collected and unified mind it became really a balanced mind. It became very steady. Very steady mind. And in our current life uh, in the world we're living in 
we wish to, as far as I can see, I recommend uh, this development of equanimity in any way we can. Equanimity and calm are not the same thing. Calm means it's calm. It means there's no, every, the water is calm. There's no, there's no big waves going on, emotional waves going on, body sensation waves going on. The mind is calm. Equanimity is like you're on the surfboard and you can ride the waves. It's, it's at its height when there's calm there. But lots of times there's not calm. And there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of up and down. So it's balanced. It's centered. It gets knocked off and it comes back. Knocked off this way, that way. It's coming back to center. It's coming back to center. The mind is, is not perturbed by disturbances. It takes the role, the energy of the disturbance, and just goes through it. And um, uh, so, um, so many times now, uh, when I'm going somewhere teaching a day long or a, a retreat, we have to take time out for people to get to uh, report on their emotions and how disturbed they are by X or Y thing in such a way that we just have to make room for that. I used to not have to do that. I've been doing this for so many decades, and that never came up, but it, it comes up a lot now. It's not that it never came up for any individual, but for it to have a whole group be called in disturbance so that there's not calm, but there's also not enough equanimity. And so in those situations, I'm not necessarily getting everything calm, but I'm able to help people come back to a more balanced state of mind, a steady state of mind. And this this whole process then of arousing interest and then uh, calming is that we balance as we meet life. That is partially how we dance with life, going back to the Four Noble Truths. We dance with life in a wise way, in a mindful way, by rousing our interest to meet things, to understand how are we being unskillful here? What's wrong here? What is the wanting? Or what's the opportunity for growth? It's not, it's not about wanting like, how do I love better? How am I more generous? And how am I more calm? And then the other way of, of, oh, well, I'm really disturbed. How do I bring back myself to a more even keel? How do I learn to roll? Oh, right now I just need to learn how to calm myself down. I need to leave. Uh, I need to go take a walk for five minutes, go to the water fountain, get water or something, because I don't have enough calm to really be doing what I need to be doing right now. Even in the middle of a meeting, excuse me, I'm going to the bathroom because you're, you're too caught in this and, it's, and you're, you're going to not be skillful. You're going to you're not do yourself well. So you find a way to bring calm. All of these factors work practically uh, 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 in terms of dharma development and dharma insight and then even esoterically, but that's another subject entirely. So uh, of the, the, this calm, this upekka it's called, is... Um, and so many of the different Buddhist teachings because it's, um, it's so important. In, in the practice of loving kindness, the, what we call the Brahma Viharas, where there's loving kindness, there's compassion, there's sympathetic joy, and there's equanimity. Just one, one place, one key teaching of the Buddha after another, he's always bringing us back 
to this equanimity. So for us to be more interested in equanimity in our own life might be of value. And I will end with a, um, a, a poem, another poem, that, um, that again illustrates, and I like to bring in these poems that are not Buddhist, Buddhist, so that we can understand um, uh, and nobody's asking you to become a, a Buddhist. We are encouraging you to be like the Buddha, but not you don't have to become a Buddhist. We're, we don't we don't recruit. We're not um, evangelic. We're not. Uh, we don't have a mission like that in this tradition. This is a poem called "Phone Call." Maybe I overdid it. Excuse me. Maybe I overdid it when I called my father an enemy of humanity. That might have been a little strongly put, a slight over-exaggeration, an immoderate description of the person who at that moment, 2,000 miles away, holding the telephone receiver six inches from his ear, must have regretted paying for my therapy. What I meant was that my father was an enemy of my humanity. And what I meant behind that was that my father was split into two people. One of them living deeply inside of me like a bad king or an incurable disease. Blighting my crops, striking down my herds, poisoning my wells. The other standing in another time zone in a kitchen in Wyoming with bad knees and white hair sprouting from his ears. I don't want to scream forever. I don't want to live without proportion like some kind of infection from the past. So I have to remember the second father, the one whose TV dinner is getting cold while he holds the phone in his left hand and stares blankly out the window where just now the sun is going down and the last fingertips of sunlight are withdrawing from the hills they once touched like a child. I don't think any of us want to scream forever. I don't think any of us want to scream in any part of our life. I don't think any of us want to be caught in an eddy over and over again do the same falling into the manhole, going down the rabbit hole, going up and out, you know, going into some sort of a tormented self-flagellation or a, a pattern of bad behavior towards ourselves or towards others or both. I don't think any of us want to do that. And as we uh, come to realize that the Dhamma does offer a way out of all of that, then our interest in the Dhamma becomes more and more natural. I have been doing this uh, uh, well over 30 years and then uh, had uh, uh, more than 10 years of being a Raja Yogi before that. So uh, making spiritual life practice and not belief, uh, all my adult life has been what I've done. 
And gradually, I see the truth of this, and I see the change that occurs. Just to give you an example as our end here, um, uh, a number of weeks ago, I was chasing a basketball after having not touched a basketball for 50 years, I decide, based on Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors, I'm going to shoot a few hoops. And so the basketball, I miss everything and the basketball is going careening off and it's going to go down this hill. I go running after it with my right arm extended and I, in fact, stop the basketball from going down the hill by tripping on rocks, falling on the arm, breaking the shoulder with the humerus bone knob in three places, vertically on each side, horizontally across, and from the back, diagonally down the front. And um, I blacked out from the pain. I came to, and uh, I was groaning, and uh, my friends were waiting for me in in their house to come have breakfast. I'd been staying in their little cottage, and they were going, well, is he doing some sort of a ritual or could he be hurt? So they come out and lo and behold, I'm hurt, you know. And they get me on this table. And for about 10 minutes, I was, I was, uh, my nose had gotten really hit strongly and I was bleeding down my throat and all of these sorts of things that you don't want to hear about. But after, after about 10 minutes, I was like present again. I mean, I was, I was out of the shock of that to the point that I could do it. And I had this moment, just like we teach in the Dhamma, like I've heard so many times myself, it was like this, and now it's like this. That moment happened, just like that. And it was. In all of these weeks, no ruffles. Endless things where I have to redo. It would take me 20 minutes to get into bed to find a place that I could sleep. I'd discover I'd left the lights on. I'd have to get back up, which took five minutes to get the lights turned off. I'd have to get back in bed. Another No ruffles. No ruffles. No ruffles. Equanimity. Equanimity. Around a whole experience. And I'm like a regular guy. I'm not, there's nothing, I'm not saying this is special about me. It's special about the practice. Now, in that same period of number of weeks, I've certainly had lots of up and downs around other things. That's about my views and opinions about our country or about uh, uh, something, something else one way or another. It's not like I've been Mr. Mr. Liberated. But, but this one experience has been completely contained in that way. And I didn't go into the um, emergency room uh, for various reasons. I was way up in the middle of nowhere and I was going to go through all these curvy roads and the pain was rather large. And um, then I also, I didn't know who I'd get as a surgeon. I didn't want anything done to me. But if I got there, do I have the right to say no? So I basically didn't go for 48 hours. So uh, this happened on a Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. And so I go tootling in to... Um, this orthopedic surgery group that I had worked on my knee and uh, the guy t- takes uh, an x-ray and he goes, oh, I'm so sorry. He says, why aren't you cursing me? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you have a very serious you know, break in your arm. You should have been cursing me with me moving you around like I was. I didn't realize you should have told me that. And I said, I it wasn't any worse than it is anyway. So then I see the surgeon. He's looking at the x-rays and he goes, so what did you do? 
And I said, what do you mean, what did I do? I, you know, I, I told you I was chasing the basketball. He says, no, what did you do? And I really didn't understand what he meant. And he said, what did you do with the pain? And I said, well, I took some ibuprofen and... <laughs> And then I was, I was mindful of it. I watched the pain as it arose and, and his eyes start to glaze over. Right? But do I stop? No, I don't stop. I say, you know, this pain, unlike when I had my knee pain because my uh, meniscus had been caught in the condyles of the knee, so I ripped my knee over and over again for two months. Uh, because I'm not going to the doctor, so I'm a bad example of that. But anyway, he, I said, so the, this pain, the knee pain was very sharp. Every moment was very sharp, and it would like go straight up into the head and like take your head off. But this pain, but it was not all the time. This pain is round in nature. It's, and by this point, he's like, when's this guy going to stop? I said, but I thought he would find this really interesting if he, if he would just go with it for a moment. I wasn't giving up. So I said, it's very round in nature, and it's not really that bad in any one moment. And it really wasn't. In any one moment, it's, it by itself, because it, it was round, it didn't have that sharp taking your head off. You know what I mean about when you're that, the difference kind of pain. And, uh, and uh, this is what you do in mindfulness. You learn to be with experience. You investigate it. This is investigating. And in the investigation, there comes a calm, and, you know, and I can't say joy in this instance, but there was a calm and an equanimity. This, is the whole, this story illustrates the whole point of the evening. And, and and I said, so it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't the moment of pain that was that was made this difficult. It was that it never stopped. <laughs> it was the quantity of it and its continuity was what made this really difficult. But that's why I could be with it for forty eight hours. Not so interested in any of this. I don't blame him because without a background in mindfulness, why would this be interesting? So then I go to the physical therapist once after some number of weeks. I was released to go to physical therapy because it was. It turned out the bones were going to mend. It was very close as to whether or not it would. And he said, if one little bump, it could totally separate, and I would be basically lose range of motion for the rest of my life. So, but anyway, that has all worked out. And so I'm at the physical therapist and I'm telling him about what I just told you. He goes, you know, in terms of the science of it, you were right. He says, this kind of a break, it radiates in all directions. It would be round rather than sharp in that way. And boy, did I feel pleased. (laughs) So um, a, a, a little small story of inspiration to end our evening with together in this way. And so... Uh, Let's just close our eyes for a moment. Dropping back into the body, remember arriving. If there's nothing you remember from this evening other than arriving, the practice of arriving, I will be a very happy yogi. Dropping into the body, feeling the breath, And now soften the heart. Just let the heart be soft. Allow, suggest, not demand, push, but open, suggest. May the heart be soft. And then we'll end with the loving kindness phrases that we typically say at the end of an evening. 
having to do with being safe and being healthy and being happy and having a life of ease and uh, uh, meaning the way I do it. These are phases that I worked out uh, with uh, the population that I worked with in a prison for four years. So I'm going to say a phrase out loud and ask that you repeat it. And say it with some confidence because you're offering this to everyone here, offering it to your friends. May you be safe from internal and external harm. May you be safe from internal and external harm. Receive this well-wishing from everyone in the room. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you have a calm, clear mind and a peaceful, loving heart. May you be physically strong, healthy, and vital. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. May you experience love, joy, wonder, and wisdom in this life just as it is. As our time together comes to a close, we reflect on what we have learned, what we have felt, what we've experienced. And from this attitude of of knowing and gratitude, we hold this possibility that what we learn from our practice will be a benefit throughout our lives that will also be a benefit to all those with whom we care and all those with whom we come in contact. May all beings everywhere find the path to the end of suffering. Thank you. Drive carefully. Remember, at the end of the driveway, we have to take right. We don't take a left at the end of the driveway, in part because that's the law, but in part because that's what we've agreed to. And in in Dharma, we keep our agreements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.